Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to the New Books Network's Middle East Studies podcast. I'm Ruben Silverman, a researcher at Stockholm University's Institute for Turkish Studies, and with me today is Gunnel Toll, the director of the Middle East Institute's Turkey program and a senior fellow for its Black Sea program. She's a leading expert on Turkey whose writings can be found in publications including the New York Times and Foreign Policy. Today, we'll be discussing her new book, Erdogan's War, A Strongman's Struggle at Home and in Syria which was published by Oxford University Press in 2022. Now, uh, first with these interviews, I always like to ask guests to talk a little bit about themselves, their background, and uh, what led them uh, to look at what they're looking at. So perhaps if you could tell a bit about yourself and what led you to study and write about contemporary Turkish affairs. Well, uh, first of all, thank you so much, Ruben. Thanks for having me on the show. Um, well, I am uh, Gönül Tol. I'm, I founded uh, the Middle East Institute's Turkey program. Uh, but before that, I uh, was a PhD student in the United States who came to the country two weeks before September 11th. Uh, so that was a radical life change for me. Um, and I started following Turkish politics from an early age because I, I come from a, a politically very active family. Um, but um, a, a year after I came to the United States, um, Erdogan came to power. So what drew me to to follow Turkish politics was actually Erdogan's rise to power, because I found it fascinating for a, a leader who has uh, an Islamist background to come to power in a country that is considered to be a staunchly secular country. So I think his rise to power was the first thing that really attracted my attention. But then uh, I started thinking, I thought, you know, given the rise and fall of political Islam in Turkey in the 1990s, I wondered what were... Recep Tayyip Erdogan's options for for political survival. Obviously, his newly established AKP had just swept into power, uh, but but I wondered whether it was possible for an Islamist-ruled politician to govern a country where real power rest, rested in the hands of the secularist military. So I thought, you know, this is going to be interesting because to Erdogan, maybe winning the electoral battle was the easy part. And now he had to win the war. So it was almost like watching a movie um, for me. I was a, a young, uh, I was in my um, early 20s, um, who had just come uh, from Turkey, and I was a PhD student uh, in, in political science. So I found his story fascinating, and that's how uh, I started watching Turkish politics under Erdogan. All right. Well, and so Turkish politics, both to people familiar with it and less familiar with it, are can be incredibly complex to make sense of. So for this book, 
what you've done and what I like is that you've had a framing device to help us make sense of it, I think, to give some narrative cohesion to it. And you've chosen to look at how Syria and politics towards policies towards Syria explain a lot of what's happened in Turkey. So um, maybe you could talk about why you chose Syria as the thing to focus on and then give us a little bit of um, a background about how policies towards Syria were before Erdogan came to power. Yes, I think Erdogan's domestic strategy uh, crystallized perfectly in Syria. So by tracing Erdogan's steps in Syria, not just recent steps, but from the day he came to power uh, until now, if you trace what he's done in Syria, I've, I realized that one could understand what he was uh, trying to do at home. Um, so he came to power in uh, the AKP came to power in 2002, um, and Erdogan did a brilliant thing. He, realizing that he could not clash with uh, Turkish military directly, because uh, that was necessary for him to uh, to politically survive uh, in Turkey. So he, I think, turned to foreign policy. Um, to realize his goals at home. And when he came to power, his number one priority was to make sure uh, to curb the military's political power. Um, and how could he avoid a war, uh, a serious confrontation with the military, and yet still achieve that goal? So foreign policy came in very handy, uh, and he did two things. Uh, on the foreign policy front. He pursued a very pro-EU, pro-Western foreign policy. And by doing that, he managed to use the narrative of democratization to achieve that goal of sidelining the military. Uh, he pushed for Turkey's EU membership because Turkey's EU membership meant Turkey had to carry out reforms that would um, uh, limit military's power in politics. So it was a brilliant strategy because on the one hand, he could say, here I am, I'm not an Islamist anymore. And if you don't believe me, look at uh, the policies that I'm going to enact. And one of them is making sure Turkey gets into EU. And if I was an Islamist, I would not be doing that because uh, of the previous Islamists, the Islamists who came before me, they were opposed to Turkey's EU membership on the grounds that uh, the EU is a Christian club. So I'm not doing that. So that was a brilliant narrative because it really convinced uh, people who would otherwise be skeptical about voting for an Islamist-rooted politician. So he did something else in the region, uh, in Syria, for instance. He never he he pursued a very pragmatic approach. He did not cross the military's red lines. So what were those? red lines, the military um, before uh, Erdogan came to power, the secularist establishment has always had always viewed Syria through the lens of Kurdish separatism. Uh, because Syria hosted the PKK's uh, now imprisoned leader Abdullah Öcalan uh, for, for many years, and that was a significant concern. And also remember, Turkey shares a long border with Syria, and on both sides of the border, you can find Kurdish communities who have historically been relatives, right? So whatever happens 
in Syrian Kurdish community uh, or or vice versa, it could have an impact, direct impact on Turkish Turkish uh, Kurdish community. So that made Syria from uh, from the point of view of the secularist establishment and the military, a very important and quote-unquote dangerous country. So the military always pushed for an approach, uh, not just vis-a-vis Syria, but the region in general, a very cautious, pragmatic approach that prioritized um, a fight against the PKK, preventing Kurdish separatism, and also um, preventing... Uh, strengthening Islamist movements in the region. So those were the red lines. And Erdogan did not cross those red lines in Syria, for instance. And and Erdogan, again, in the the 1980s and 1990s, when he uh, claimed and and owned being an Islamist uh, political actor, he was very critical of the Assad regime for what the regime did in the 1980s in Hama, uh, when there was a Muslim Brotherhood uprising there, the the regime crushed the uprising and killed thousands of members of Muslim Brotherhood. And Erdogan was one of the actors who was very critical of that and uh, and saw the Assad regime as, as a quote unquote godless, elitist, uh, uh, cool regime. But when he came to power, he cultivated very close ties to the Assad regime, mainly because he did not want to provoke the military. And he made sure that he had the backing of the Assad regime in the fight against the PKK. So he could he could uh, turn and tell the military that, that, you know, this is, I'm not doing anything that differs from your policy. So uh, up until 2011, he pursued a very cautious, very pragmatic, uh, approach in Syria. So that was to make sure uh, he could uh, curb military's power without provoking a direct confrontation with the military. Hmm. Well, so in that case, once the Arab Spring-style protests began in Syria in 2011, 2012, and Erdogan's government began changing its attitudes towards the Assad regime, first pushing some sort of the negotiated exit from power, and then really backing the overthrow of the regime. Um, how did these changes um, show a new policy towards the military, a new a new ambitions of Erdogan's? Uh, in what extent were they in tension with allies that Erdogan had been cultivating up to that point, like the U.S.? Uh, so. Until 2011, the foreign policy approach Erdogan pursued both vis-a-vis the European Union and also regional countries, including Syria, it paid paid off because he managed to uh, sideline the military. He managed to centralize power. So by 2011, Erdogan was pretty comfortable because he had brought uh, every major institution under his direct control, including the military and other levers of power, secularist bureaucracy, uh, even media uh, and, and, and Turkish courts. So he was in a comfortable place. And now uh, he, he had turned his eyes, set eyes on a new goal, and that was switching the country's parliamentary system uh, to an all-powerful presidential system that would grant Erdogan unprecedented power. So that was his new goal. And he realized 
that he was not going to achieve that goal with the support of his previous allies, such as liberals, social democrats, and uh, because when he came to power, he had a diverse coalition uh, that went way beyond his Islamist base. And he used, he defined himself as a conservative Democrat when he came to power to keep that diverse coalition, pro-democracy coalition together. But in, by, in, in 2011 onwards, uh, what he wanted to do was basically practically establishing a one-man rule. And he could not rely on the pro-democracy allies that he had cultivated to achieve that goal. So he turned to the country's Islamists, conservatives, uh, Turks and Kurds. And, and he changed his narrative and he changed his political identity as well. So he gave up on the conservative democratic brand and he embraced Islamism. So if you listen to his victory speech after uh, 2011 elections, that sounds uh, radically different from the tone that he said before, the cautious tone he said. So in 2011, he framed himself as the protector of Muslims, as the protector of the Muslim nation, the Ummah, uh, not just in the country, but across the world. So the Arab uprisings came at a perfect moment for Erdogan because it allowed him to um, take that narrative beyond Turkey's borders because then he could claim uh, he was supporting the Islamists who were rebelling against uh, autocrats like in Syria. He could frame that support as his way of uh, protecting uh, Muslims everywhere. So he basically said, I am throwing my support behind those who are trying to topple, uh, again, the godless elitist regimes in the region because I built democracy. I built real democracy in Turkey. I came to power uh, and AKP toppled uh, the CHP, which is the secularist establishment. And in his view, they were the godless elitist regime. So he said... Arabs are now trying to replicate what I've done in Turkey. I'm going to back that. So that was a really powerful narrative from the point of view of his conservative base. It really struck uh, a nerve. And that's how he justified his backing and even his arming of uh, the anti-Assad groups. And I would say, Ruben, you mentioned that um, Erdogan for some time negotiated with the regime after the uprisings there started. There was there were negotiations going on and then Turkey uh, once uh, it's lost hope on uh, on those negotiations, Turkey started backing the opposition. And I would I, I disagree with that because initially that was certainly the narrative. That's what Ahmet Davutoglu at the time, who was the foreign minister, was saying that we're going to give nine months to the Assad regime. We are talking to him to force him to change course. Uh, and when it failed, he said, you know, we did everything we could. And now we're just, we have no other option but to back the anti-Assad uh, forces. But it, it didn't really work that way because uh, the, the uprisings in Syria started in March. And shortly after that, Turkey started backing and arming the anti-Assad opposition. 
meaning um, there were two parallel processes going on. On the one hand, yes, Davutoglu was talking to the Assad regime, but on the other, um, Turkey was arming uh, the opposition forces, including uh, Islamist uh, radical groups, uh, suggesting that Erdogan had long given up on Assad. Uh, and again, I think that was part of his strategy uh, and narrative, this Islamist narrative that he had at home to secure the backing of Islamists and conservatives. Now, that's interesting. You know, one thing I just, it occurs to me that I, I learned from the book that I just had not appreciated was the way in which Erdogan linked his main opposition, the CHP, uh, the Republican People's Party, to Assad. He accused the CHP of having a sectarian outlook. And uh, I did not I did not realize how crucial that was to his strategy, as you discuss. That's exactly right. And really, what he did using foreign policy, but Syria in particular, he really, he did, he did several things. I mean, by the Syrian conflict helped Erdogan in many ways. And, and the first one was it helped him uh, delegitimize the legitimate political opposition because he equated the Assad regime and its cruelty with the CHP. He basically used the narrative that, uh, and and even people in, in his party said this, uh, that uh, Arabs and Syrians are trying to topple their own CHP. And that was the narrative that he used. So, so he used his Syria policy to delegitimize his opponents uh, to weaken them and also to um, uh, to strengthen his image as the protector of Muslims and and Islamists. Mm. Yeah, well, so that's the that's his goal in 2011, 2012, 2013, we can say. But by 2014, 2015, uh, the only factions that seem to be gaining in the Syrian war are the Assad regime, which Russia is now coming and supported, ISIS, which is starting to take over large parts of the country, and uh, Kurdish groups in the north, which are getting support from the U.S. increasingly. So these new realities really show, in many ways, a, a bankruptcy of Erdogan's strategy, his and the Voodoo strategy at this time. So how did these new realities affect his policies, and how did they affect domestic politics as well? Yeah, I mean the relationship. I'm I'm glad you underlined that. So um, these things had an impact on Erdogan's policy, and Erdogan's policy had an impact on those things. So it was a dialectical uh, relationship. Um, so Erdogan's strategy in in 2011, his strategy was to rely on uh, Islamists and conservative Turks and Kurds. To, to realize his goal of switching to the presidential system, right? So that was the strategy. But in 2015, we found out that that strategy failed because in 2015, um, Erdogan, in June 2015 elections, Erdogan's party lost its parliamentary majority for the first time since 2002. And that was largely due to the pro-Kurdish parties' uh, historic victory. It captured 13% of the vote, uh, which was unprecedented. And that victory denied Erdogan's party the parliamentary majority. 
Uh, now, the pro-Kurdish party's uh, victory had something to do with what was going on in Syria as well. Um, and Erdogan, in his previous policy before 2015, as part of his efforts to woo the, the, the Kurdish uh, voters uh, to secure their backing for his presidential dream, he launched a Kurdish opening in an effort to uh, grant uh, some cultural and I would say some symbolic rights to, to the Kurds and in return for their support uh, for his presidential system. And in 2014, something happened that told Erdogan that that was not going to happen, that Kurds were not going to back his uh, autocratic dreams. In 2014, uh, ISIS was about to capture the northern Syrian town of Kobani. Um, Kurds were, were fighting there against ISIS, but it was a, a, a difficult fight. Um, and Kurds in Turkey, as well as the United States and others in the international arena, asked Erdogan to help uh, Kurds uh, open the border so uh, Iraqi Kurds could go in to help uh, their brothers fighting against ISIS. And Erdogan's inaction um, led to protests in Turkey. Kurds, Turks took to the streets protesting what they saw as Erdogan's inaction in the face of an impending uh, uh, bloodbath. Uh, because Erdogan jubilantly at, this, at, at the time said, Kobani is about to fall. So that was a really critical moment because that was a time when the Kurds thought, Erdogan is not good for us. He's not going to do anything to grant rights to us. And from Erdogan's point of view, that was a moment when he realized, oh, Kurds are not going to back my uh, my plans to switch to a presidential system. So that turning point, uh, I think, became more visible a few months later when the pro-Kurdish HDP's co-chair, Selahattin Demirtas, who is now in prison, uh, and he's in prison because of that very moment, uh, he said, we are not going to make you president, Erdogan. He said this to, to Erdogan. So all of a sudden, Erdogan realized that relying on the Kurds was not going to work because they were not going to back his plans. And we saw that uh, that was going to happen in 2015 elections. So uh, Erdogan's AKP lost the parliamentary majority. So Erdogan switched tactics and allied himself with the country's Turkish nationalist, and he embarked on a uh, on a project to very a, a, a project to not only weaken the Kurds at home, but also in Syria. So that anti-Kurdish platform that Erdogan embraced after uh, June 2015 elections helped him greatly. In a matter of few months, he managed to secure back the parliamentary majority. And that translated into his alliance with the Turkish nationalists and his anti-Kurdish uh, agenda, translated into a policy in Syria where he gave up on, his priority was not toppling the Assad regime anymore. His priority became curbing Kurdish influence in northern Syria. Uh, and from then on, Erdogan's policies in Syria helped the Assad regime, the very regime that he so desperately tried to topple. 
2016, for instance, when Aleppo fell, Erdogan's role there played a critical role uh, because all the mechanisms that was established within the Astana process, uh, Erdogan made sure uh, that the opposition was Syrian opposition was enlisted in his fight against the Kurds in Syria, not against the regime. So that really weakened uh, the anti-Assad opposition. Uh, so all the steps that he has been taking since 2015, 2016, um, uh, strengthened the Assad regime militarily and secured its gains vis-a-vis the opposition. Uh, so that just tells you how uh, linked Erdogan's Syria policy was to his his domestic agenda. Well, so this like this is interesting. So I I want to ask you about the significance of the coup in tw- in twenty sixteen or the failed coup, because I think you're I think you're right that this. T- relationship between Erdogan and Kurdish voters and Syria, that's like the key thing that's explaining a lot of the dynamics that are going on when he chooses to break with one, move to the nationalists. And yet there are other groups. We talked a little about liberals. There's also the, there's also the Gulen movement. And then there's this coup, the coup in 2016, which maybe we can look at that as, was it a turning point after which Erdogan became more allied with nationalist groups or was that already in the mix, the way you're describing it to me, it sounds like moving towards Russia, moving towards nationalists was already happening even before 2016. So how do you think about the coup in 2016, its effect on these policies and policy shifts? Uh, You're right. It was a turning point in many ways. It basically helped Erdogan consolidate power in his hands even further. But yes, aligning with Russia, aligning with the Assad regime, came before that. I think it was, again, part of the strategy that began after Erdogan allied himself with the Turkish nationalists uh, after June 2015 uh, elections. Uh, but 2016 and the failed coup attempt was so significant, and it was a, a real turning point in the sense uh, that um, it really um, allowed Erdogan to uh, criminalize his opponents, not just the Gulenists, but uh, other uh, political opponents too. And remember, uh, the pro-Kurdish party's co-chairs, Halatin Demirtas, went to jail uh, shortly after that. Uh, But the the, the failed coup also really strengthened Erdogan's alliance with with the nationalists, Turkish nationalists, because uh, after Erdogan cleansed the Turkish bureaucracy of of the Gulenists, who had infiltrated into uh, various institutions of Turkish bureaucracy, thanks to Erdogan, by the way, who paved the way for that. Uh, after he cleansed them, uh, the, the bureaucracy, he filled those posts with Turkish nationalists, mostly. So from 2016 onwards, after the failed coup, we started seeing this closer alliance a closer relationship between Erdogan and the nationalists, because what really united uh, nationalists and and Erdogan was their anti-Kurdish stance, their anti-Western stance, and their anti-Gulenist stance. So those things brought them 
together and made them tight uh, allies. Uh, and that tight alliance uh, really uh, translated into a foreign policy, which became uh, very anti-Western and pro-Russian. So uh, we started seeing Eurasianism, which is a nationalist, secularist, strategic vision. It's an anti-American, Russophile movement uh, with roots that date back to the 1930s. And it included among its ranks socialists, nationalists, and communists. Um, it became, uh, Eurasianism became more pronounced. Uh, Eurasianists started filling bureaucratic posts and uh, became pretty, they had Erdogan's um, ear. It called for a pro-Russian orientation in Turkey's foreign policy, arguing that Turkey had to abandon its pro-Western foreign policy and make Russia its most important ally. So with that shift in Erdogan's alliance, we saw a dramatic uh, shift in Erdogan's um, Syria policy too. So from Erdogan's point of view, aligning with Russia, aligning with with uh, the Assad regime became a must because uh, remember Russia... Uh, had intervened in Syria militarily in 2015. So uh, that made Russia the kingmaker. Russia called all the shots in Syria by 2016. And from Erdogan's point of view, his number one goal was in his number one goal in Syria was to curb Kurdish influence there. And that required um, a Turkish military presence on the ground. A, a, a Turkish military incursion into Syria. And for that to happen, Erdogan figured he needed Russia. And that's when I think something shifted in his mind uh, that that he really had to keep Russia close. And that's when he started uh, uh, entertaining the idea of purchasing Russian S-400s. What, what was the logic behind this S-400 purchase? You talk, you talk a little bit about it in the book, and it does, from the U.S. perspective, it's this key problem in the alliance. Um, how, do, how does that relate to this period in um, Turkish po foreign policy? Well, when I talk about Turkish-American relations, uh, Syria and Turkey-Russia relations, I always use this uh, this line that, that Syria became uh, the place where Turkish-Russian strategic partnership died and where Turkish-Russian strategic partnership was born. Uh, so 2015 was significant in that regard. Uh, it was significant because of, again, Erdogan's shifting alliance and his shifting strategy uh, at home. Uh, but it was also important because uh, in 2015, um, Russia, uh, Turkey downed a Russian jet and uh, Putin retaliated by taking uh, economic steps, which really hurt Turkish economy. But what... Um, uh, Erdogan was more fearful was a, a Russian military retaliation. Uh, he really thought that Russia was going to retaliate militarily against Turkey and Russia had deployed uh, S-400s uh, in, in Syria. So Erdogan appealed to his NATO allies and asked them not to withdraw the patriots uh, from Turkey that were scheduled to to be withdrawn. So he asked them not to do that. And yet uh, the United States went ahead and, and withdrew the Patriots. So 
in Erdogan's mind, um, he concluded that the U.S. and NATO were never going to be there if Erdogan needed them. They were never going to to back Erdogan. So here he was, all alone in his mind, uh, left uh, to to uh, Russia. And, and Russia was the only country that could give a green light to what he wanted to do in Syria. Uh, so, so that's why I think uh, purchasing S-400s was Erdogan's way of securing Putin's friendship and telling him that, you know, I'm here with you uh, and I don't, just like you, I don't trust NATO or the United States. So that was a very bonding moment, in fact. So purchasing S-400s was, was part of that. But I think it was partly, you can explain uh, that purchase with several other factors too. And one of them is I think Erdogan was also truly afraid of another coup against him. So he wanted a missile defense system which would allow him to uh, to shoot down F-16s. Uh, and another, I think, uh, angle to this story is, uh, uh, and this is what I've heard from a, an, a, a U.S. military official who said that, um, you know, if he purchased uh, uh, Patriots as opposed to S-400s, uh, there could be limits to what uh, he could do financially. Uh, things that would be problematic from our point of view because he basically wanted to enrich people around him um, and, and as for purchasing S-400s allowed him to do that. So I think that's why purchasing the S-400 was, um, was both in response to what U.S. did and NATO did or did not do in response to the crisis between uh, Turkey and and Russia, but also uh, it's it has something to do with Erdogan's domestic calculations too. Well, you know, I mean, mentioning uh, the um, material the material aspects of these of this foreign policy and the, these decisions, it, it reminds me. And just one other last question, I really wanted to ask you about the book, which is that you make an a, an effort to show how this high politics uh, it affects actu- actual people's lives too. So I thought maybe it would be interesting. You could say a word about that as well. All these policies that we've been talking about, that Erdogan's been doing in Syria, how did that affect the lives of actual people, Syrian people, people in Turkey? Um, maybe there's something there we should think about as well. Well, sure. I think Syria, the conflict in Syria did several things. It really um, it boosted uh, Kurdish hopes. I remember I was uh, traveling across the Kurdish region in Turkey at the time, and um, right after the United States airdropped weapons to the Kurdish militia fighting against ISIS in Kobani. Uh, and that was such an important moment because every Kurd that I talked to at the time said that they were on the verge of establishing a Kurdish state with U.S. backing. So they had such high hopes. And I think that was one of the reasons why the Kurdish uh, peace process uh, broke down. 
because the Kurds all of a sudden they had these huge expectations and they decided they were not going to settle for what they thought was cosmetic changes from Erdogan. So I think that was part of the story. So it really, the Syrian conflict really boosted Turkish hopes and dreams for statehood. And that in turn exacerbated Turkish nationalists' fears of Kurdish separatism. So all of a sudden, uh, because of Syria, you have uh, nationalists and nationalist fears on the rise and Kurdish hopes on the rise. And Erdogan did a, an excellent job from his point of view uh, on riding that wave. So he really um, used that nationalist fear to boost his regime, to establish his autocracy. He used Turkish nationalist fear that Kurds were about to establish a a Kurdish state. And he, using that fear, exploiting that fear, allowed him to secure their full backing, which in turn allowed him to not only win election after election, but also uh, win the referendum, which switched the country's parliamentary system to a presidential system. So in that regard, the anti-Kurdish platform that we've been seeing since 2015 has something to do with what's happened in Syria and how Erdogan tried to uh, to use that to his advantage. So if you, and you know what, what what's happened since 2015, uh, Kurdish cities have been destroyed, Kurds uh, were killed, um, the peace process with the Kurds broke down, the, 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 uh, the ceasefire uh, that was in place until 2015 with the PKK, it broke down. So it had a dramatic impact on the lives of millions of Kurds in Turkey, even the pro-Kurdish uh, legitimate opposition, uh, HDP. Um, its network has been destroyed. Uh, its uh, politicians, members have been jailed. So uh, it dealt a huge blow to the Kurdish political movement and just regular Kurds. Their lives have become uh, more miserable because of the repression that ensued uh, 2015 June elections. And in Syria too, um, many Kurds uh, have lost their homes. In Afrin, for instance, Afrin is a northern Syrian Kurdish town, which was a, a used to be a, a majority Kurdish town before Turkey launched another incursion and changed the ethnic balance there. So if you talk to Kurds enough, uh, Kurds in Afrin, their lives have been turned upside down. They had to leave their homes. They lost their families. They lost their, their land. Um, and other things that Turkey is doing in northern Syria, it's engaged in in a, a state nation building effort in many ways. You have Turkish uh, uh, teachers teaching Turkish to people there. Uh, so both Turkey's military presence and all the human rights abuses carried out by Turkey and Turkish-backed forces against Kurds, against our Arabs, against people living there, uh, it really changed people's lives and also the, the nation uh, building efforts that Turkey has been 
carrying out, it's going to have an impact on the many generations to come. Right. Well, see, that, and that brings me to the final question I wanted to ask, which is that, I mean, the book itself stands on its own as just a great account of this time period of, of Erdogan's policies, and it offers a really good way of understanding them and how foreign policy impacts domestic policy and back and forth. So, I mean, the book the book should be, I think, I hope will be read just not just now, but in the future as well. Nonetheless, it is interesting to think about what some of the effects or lasting impacts are going forward. So if we could talk about that a little bit, what do you think some of the lasting impacts of the events you talk about in the book will be? Well, I think um, domestically, aside from on top of everything that I've said about uh, Kurds living in Turkey and Syria, I think the most lasting impact for Turkish society is going to be the, the presence of 4 million Syrian refugees. So Turkey's social fabric has changed forever. Uh, because I know Erdogan is promising a solution and the opposition parties are promising a solution to the Syrian refugee problem, but none of them, uh, the, the, the solutions that they're offering are not realistic because they're basically saying that we're just going to send them back home. That's how we're going to resolve the issue. That's not realistic. That's inhumane. That's against international law. So Syrians in Turkey are, are there to stay. And that calls for a, a comprehensive approach, which um, should grant citizenship to those people. Because short of that, you're going to end up having a huge social, economic, and political problem in your hands. You have to integrate those people into Turkish society, Turkish politics, Turkish economy, uh, because otherwise... Uh, you're going to compound the problems. And we've seen that, and Turkey is familiar with that. Uh, there's a large Turkish uh, community in Germany living in the country for since the 1940s. And, and many of them still do not have German citizenship. And uh, because of that, uh, they are posing a huge challenge to, Tur to German state and German society because they're not integrated. So Turkey will be facing similar problems, if not worse, because Turkey is a country which is not known uh, to uh, to be able to solve its uh, ethnic problems. Right? We still have the country is still struggling with resolving its Kurdish problems. So, so I think this is going to remain a big problem, and that's the direct impact of of the conflict in Syria. And what about like a province like uh, Idlib? I mean, one thing that I took from your the book was just, the, and as you mentioned, the degree to which, um, say, Turkish governors of provinces are actually exercising authority across the border, things like this, uh, will is that likely to go on? Is that likely to change in any way? Uh, what do you think? Well, it depends on what happens on May 14th. Uh, Turkey will be holding elections uh, on May 14th, parliamentary and presidential elections. Um, and if the opposition wins, uh, we could expect uh, a, a faster normalization uh, between uh, Turkey and, and the Assad regime. Um, but we don't know what that will entail because one of the conditions set forth 
um, by the Assad regime for normalization is uh, withdrawal of Turkish troops. Uh, obviously, it's not an easy sell uh, for whoever wins the elections, by the way. It's really because many people, they don't see Syria as a foreign policy matter. They see Syria as a domestic matter because of the uh, the presence of, of Syrian refugees and also because of concerns about the PKK. So withdrawal of forces might be seen uh, by Turkish people as as uh, as weakness. Uh, so any government is going to be struggling uh, with finding a creative solution because that's what the Assad regime is pushing for. But if the new government, let's say, decides that it can frame withdrawal of forces as uh, as the only viable solution to the Syrian refugee problem, it might move forward with that. And if that happens, that will significantly change uh, things on the ground in northern Syria. Uh, obviously, I don't see Assad regime agreeing to an outsized influence, whether it's military or political or social, uh, a Turkish influence in the country. So, so I guess that will all depend on what normalizing ties with the Assad regime entail. No, that makes sense. That makes sense. A lot waits till the elections to be decided. With that in mind, let me ask you in this vein, with this book finished and published, um, are you mostly just focused on the, the day-to-day of the of electoral coverage, or have you turned your attention to a bigger project also? Uh, what, is, what, what are you focusing on at the moment? Well, you're right, uh, Ruben, I, the Turkish politics, uh, daily Turkish politics keeps me uh, quite busy. I have, uh, there are days where I have five speaking engagements a day, uh, so it's pretty hectic, but I'm also um, looking at the earthquake because I think that was another moment, just like uh, how Syria crystallized uh, Erdogan's, uh, what Erdogan was trying to do domestically, has been trying to do domestically, I think the earthquake in a similar way, crystallize what is wrong with Erdogan's new Turkey. Everything that's wrong about Erdogan's new Turkey, we saw that in the earthquake. So maybe I can tell uh, the story of Erdogan's fall, maybe this time, uh, through the lens of the earthquake. Well, I think that would be a very interesting book to read. And... um. This one was, but this one was too. And uh, I mean, re- again, regardless of the election outcomes, this book is a wonderful book for helping make sense of, well, the past 20 years of Turkish foreign and domestic policy. So I hope people will go and find it and read it and learn from it. And um, I want to thank you for taking the time to talk with us today. Well, thank you, Ruben. It's, it's been a pleasure.